Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world, and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. Hello, loyal listeners. I'm Dr. Tom Varghese, a general thoracic surgeon at the University of Utah and co-host of Same Surgeon, Different Light. In today's episode, we connect with Dr. Sidhu Gengadaran, Chief of Thoracic Surgery and Interventional Pulmonology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Associate Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School, and Program Director of the Cardiothoracic Surgery Residency at Beth Israel Deaconess. As a result of his passion and work in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, Dr. Gengadaran was also recently named as Chair of the DEI Committee in the Department of Surgery at Beth Israel. Sidhu's father comes from the same part of India as I, uh, the southern state of Kerala, while his mom is from the Philippines. We will explore his journey from the humble beginnings as a first-generation biracial kid in New Jersey to now walking the hallowed halls of Harvard. We discuss how he built the nation's largest surgical program for tracheobronchomalacia, as well as his thoughts on the future of DEI efforts for our field. Join us on this episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light. Today, I have the unique pleasure of being joined by uh, the awe-inspiring, amazing Dr. Sidhu Gengadaran at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess. Um, now, uh, you, many of you are listening and you don't have image in front of you. Usually when we think of a Harvard faculty member, we think of a very uh, you know, strict upbringing, uh, rigid personality, wearing a bow tie in front of us. I can assure you, Dr. Gengadaran is the exact opposite of all of those personalities. But Sudhu, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Tom. Really happy to be here. Uh, I've listened to a few of them, and they're they're fascinating. I hope uh, we will at least try to approach that same level. Perfect. Well, so since uh, Dr. Gengadaran's background is very unique, I, I think we're going to start there. Uh, Sudhu, uh, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, uh, about... 25 uh, miles outside of uh, Manhattan in a suburb called Parsippany. Um, my parents had moved there um, after they met and got married in Chicago. 
I was born in Evanston, Illinois, but uh, moved to New Jersey when I was two or three years old. And then uh, what, what exactly did your parents do? Because their backgrounds are very unique. Is that correct, Sudhu? Yes. So, you know, I think uh, a very common immigrant story for the 60s. You know, my father was from India, from Kerala, um, which is uh, familiar. My, my home state, exactly. <laughs> uh, and he... Uh, came over to do first a master's and a PhD in engineering at Northwestern. Um, and my mother had grown up in the provinces of Bataan in the Philippines in a town called Dino Lupihan, which is a small uh, town that when I visited there as a kid felt like it was uh, a thousand miles from Manila. But in reality, it's actually not even a hundred miles um, from Manila. But it was a pretty small town. Um, they had pigs, you know, in their house uh, or adja adjacent to their house. And it was um, by virtue of education that she also came to the United States to do a master's uh, in education. So she was a teacher for many years and then became a guidance counselor. My father worked as an engineer until he retired from engineering uh, and then became a math teacher at a private school near Wow. And so you were, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because uh, growing up, first generation immigrant, um, it, it, you know, uh, you know, uh, you, you, your parents were immigrants and then you're the first generation after that. And then, of course, the, the mixed ethnicity. Uh, tell me about some of the challenges you faced. Um, and I don't want you to be too humble. <laughs> I mean, I think our listeners want the raw emotions. I mean, I, I just want to see about some of the challenges growing up, uh, you know, in the suburbs of, uh, you know, uh, Manhattan, New Jersey area. Uh, can you, can you expand on that? Yeah, I think, you know, back when I was a younger kid, so just before starting school and, and then actually almost into high school, there, there actually weren't that many uh, Indian families. There were very few immigrant families in my town. And um, to the point where I think you, you probably have this same experience. You have a lot of aunts and uncles. Pretty much anybody that your parents were friends with is your aunt or uncle. You have a zillion cousins. So, so I think, you know, the traditional thing is that your aunts and uncles come from your same ethnic background. So your Indian friends are, are your cousins and relatives, even if you had no bloodline with them. But when I was growing up, actually, my aunts and uncles, I remember having Burmese, um, Taiwanese, Chinese, all these, all these other first generation uh, kids were my cousins, because I think my parents were looking for other folks that were in similar positions uh, to them and their family. So, um, and you, and you found solidarity, I think, with that, you know, where there were very few, um, you know, honestly, non-white uh, families where I grew up, uh, at least through high school, where things started to change, I think. Um, it does it does make it challenging because clearly, you know, there's a bit of this um, unicorn or you're a little bit different. And I remember, ironically, um, I played a lot of music growing up and... Um, I went to band camp, um, summer band camp, 
Uh, and, and this summer band camp was, uh, it was based in the junior high at my, in my town. And one of the directors, um, like ironically was named Mr. White. That was literally his name. And, and I had found out that he referred to me as the little brown kid. Now it was true, both of those things. I was pretty little growing up and, um, still am. And, and I was pretty brown and in definitely in comparison to the rest of the complexion of the, uh, the kids that were at that camp. So, you know, I think it was pretty early on that, that my mother had told me, um, that you are going to be looked at differently, which I think for a parent must be a, a tough thing to have to tell, you know, an otherwise idealistic kid who thinks, you know, the, the world's their oyster in front of them. But um, I did remember that. And, and I think, you know, she was proved right on many occasions. So I think like, like all of us, we've, we've gone through periods where you're pretty clear that the experiences that you're having are highly uh, dependent on the color of your skin or your last name or your religion or any one of a number of things. So I think that was definitely one of the things that um, I was acutely aware of pretty early on. And um, I would say that, you know, for me, it was a motivating factor for sure. Now, now be honest. Uh, Asian parents in general um, are very hard to please uh, in the sense that you could come home with straight A's, get all the awards in the world. And the, usually the natural response is, uh, yeah, and what are you going to do next, right? Uh, is, is that kind of what, what you faced growing up as well, or were your parents unique? Uh, no, they weren't unique in that way. <laughs> they, were, they, they fit that mold uh, to a T. In fact, I think like a lot of, a lot of Asian kids, first-generation kids, I knew about Harvard as a pretty young kid. And in, in a way, I thought that that was the only option for college. Like if you didn't go there, that was that was a problem. And to the point where, you know, when I became um, a little bit older, when I was a teenager going through teenage rebellion, the only place I didn't want to go was Harvard. Was Harvard. Yeah. Not that, you know, not that it, it was a lot to get into Harvard, but but it became one of these things like I'm going to apply to these other places because because I really don't uh, want to just follow what is expected. So where'd you, where'd you end up, Sadu? Uh, I ended up, I ended up at Dartmouth. And, oh, and, hey, and for listeners, I'm laughing because in normal hum, human families, getting to an Ivy League like Dartmouth would be considered like an amazing success story. But with, <laughs> with our think, Asian parents. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think ultimately they were, they were happy with that. But, you know, it's funny because it, it happened on a trip up to, to Boston. We, we had come up here, we, visited Harvard and MIT. And, and I think my, my father was kind of getting this very nonchalant read for me. And I don't, I don't know how he thought of doing this, but he, he um, decided to take another two hour ride up north from Boston. And that's when we saw the campus. And then I, I was hoping that I would get in and I, I got in and ended up staying there for med school too. So so it's interesting that you were saying that your your father was an engineer who ultimately became a math teacher, and your your mom wasn't also not in the medical world. 
Uh, when, when did this interest for medical school uh, and, and pursuing that uh, come into play? I, I think it was pretty early on, although, you know, there are probably a few approved uh, professions. You know, my brother's an engineer. Uh, I'm a doctor. But, but, but I don't think that my parents pushed me too hard. I, I mean, to tell you the absolute truth, the earliest professions that I aspired to be, besides being a doctor, I did think about that at a very early stage. Um, the second one that my mom tells me I aspired to be was a garbage man because, you know, you see those guys coming out with the big trucks. And then the third thing was president of the United States. So that, that was on my short list. Um, obviously, I didn't go in that direction. But, uh, but that, 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 those were the three things that... Those are I, the three choices. That's yeah. fantastic. That's like... <laughs> um, your, your decision to go into cardiothoracic surgery, did, did that start in medical school or was that something that started in general surgery training? Uh, that definitely did not happen until my general surgery training. Um, you know, I knew I wanted to be a, a surgeon early on. And I think also, you know, probably without people in the medical profession that were close to me, this decision was probably based on a very limited understanding of what, you know, medicine really entailed. So I, I knew about pediatricians because I went to one. I knew about ER docs and surgeons because they were on TV. And that was about it. So I didn't know there were people that did radiation oncology or ENT or any one of a number of really amazing specialties. Um, but that, you know, that's what I had conceived of going into. I think, you know, the, for me, my general surgery training, I had done some lab work um, with the vascular surgeon at Dartmouth, who really was a tremendous mentor to me. Uh, Dr. Jack Cronenwet, and he sort of showed me what an academic surgeon that was busy clinically could, could achieve and how, uh, as a leader in a, in a division, how he could build a, um, a group of surgeons who interacted really well, who all had, um, you know, a clinical and academic niche. And it was really, you know, pretty lucky that I ended up doing research with him after my first summer in med school. Um, and then from that, I built a, you know, an interest in, in vascular surgery. So when I started my training, it was really 100% gung-ho. I was heading into vascular surgery. And I went uh, two years and then I went to the lab. Uh, in the lab, I was working with, in a, you know, a vascular biology lab, basically looking at endothelial uh, damage and ways to mitigate that and, you know, doing a lot of operations on rabbits and sewing very small things back together or balloon angioplasting, femoral uh, rabbit arteries. Um, and then when I came back from that experience, I still loved all the research um, component, but I thought that I wanted to deal with patients that were facing death. Um, as, a, as a pretty routine part of that practice. I liked the longitudinal care, um, so that limited some specialties. You know, you get a lot of longitudinal care with vascular surgery. And I liked the, the technical challenges that, that some um, surgical specialties really put um, a premium on. And when I went through all that uh, thoracic surgery 
definitely stood out for me. You know, the blend of small cases, big cases, life-threatening things, real complications that can happen in the operating room or out, and then really getting close to the human condition, right? So before I went to med school, I actually had this, I took a couple of years off before med school and I was playing a ton of music, but I had taken that time off actually because I wanted to be a writer and that didn't work out. You realize that you're trying to destroy every single myth about uh, the Asian American out there, right? <laughs> you're trying to play your music, you're doing writing. Just yeah, like, um, I, I'll tell you, I can't, I can't honestly, I'm, I can't believe that my, my parents didn't disown me during most of college going into med school because I was sort of traipsing around and eventually moved to the East Village in Manhattan. I had hair that was down to the middle of my back. I walked around in like a black trench coat that was all ripped up and combat boots and, and just played music in, you know, clubs in the East Village and Lower East Side till pretty late at night. And, you know, that was, that was my thing. And I knew I was going to go to med school at some point, but, but I don't think they could have known that. Well, um, to our listeners, the good thing is, um, Dr. Gengadaran did not get disowned because he did eventually become a faculty member in the Harvard Medical School system because currently he's the division chief of uh, thoracic surgery at Beth Israel. But uh, I want to touch right now on your career because even though Beth Israel is part of the Harvard system, you know, there's, you, you know, there, there are differences amongst the different Harvard institutions. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, clinical practices um, and, uh, you know, what they take on. But you have created, or your division really has, and you've taken it to the next level, a very unique clinical practice in Boston. Um, can you describe to us, like, how you came into the surgical treatments of uh, tracheobronchomalacia and how you ended up creating that world-class center of excellence over there at Beth Israel? Well, I think, you know, like a lot of things that happen, there's a ton of luck involved. I was lucky enough to come into a place where there was a great relationship between interventional pulmonologists at a time where there were really only a small handful of them in the country. They were in Germany and some in Canada. But at the time uh, when I came out, you know, 2005 is when I finished my fellowship. There had already been an interventional pulmonology practice here that had been training uh, fellows and so was quite um, quite advanced and was working already very closely with the thoracic surgery group. So with that relationship in mind, the um, you know among the different things that they were interested in, they had already developed an interest in tracheobronchomalacia. It was a sort of a nascent interest and we're starting to see patients. The first patients that were operated on for TBM at the BI were, I think, was back in 2002. And so I came into that group where there was already this sort of interest level. And I joined a group of three, um, three thoracic surgeons. I was the, the, the youngest of three. And about, and so when I got there, the, the second and the totem pole was the one that was do, excuse me, doing most of the, um, or all of the, the airway work. He had trained at MGH and then, uh, and this is uh, Dr. Simone Shiku. And he took me under 
his wing when I first got there. I had no idea what TBM was. And, and, you know, honestly, I had done hundreds and hundreds of operations during my training and I had done one trachea resection and he was really an expert surgeon and was happy to show me uh, both of these techniques, how to take apart an, an airway and how to uh, plasty an airway. And then from there, um, you know, we developed different techniques. We started looking at uh, the outcomes, trying to figure out who should have this operation, try to define a little bit more about the best way to work it up. And, and, in, and it grew from there. And I have great partners in interventional pulmonology now. And one of the things that I think was, was, was prescient was um, we decided pretty early on that we would bring interventional pulmonology into the division of thoracic surgery. So our division is actually a hybrid uh, mixture of surgeons and pulmonologists where um, there are equal partners and the turf war that can otherwise sometimes exist um, with proceduralists that cover the same landscape um, really doesn't exist with us because it's purely symbiotic. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's one of the things that I admire about your your division because you're correct. It's a very very unique model having thoracic surgeons and interventional pulmonologists. Um, It's it's almost logistically impossible nowadays in other academic centers to even broach that conversation because you know pulmonary says that they're part of the Department of Medicine and then but the interventional pulmonologists by themselves are proceduralists. So they, they feel more in alignment with us. Uh, but I, I mean, you guys really do make it work. But the other thing that I've been fascinated by is, is that not only did you embark on this difficult, challenging operation, every single step of the way, your group has done a remarkable job of detailing what you did, the different steps. I encourage the leaders to really look at, at the articles that uh, the group that Dr. Ganganaran and the Beth Israel group has really put out there. But you've also been very transparent with your missteps. Um, you know, uh, I remember you, uh, you and I having this conversation about, you know, you were using one type of mesh for TBM operations, and then you realized that that wasn't quite correct, and then you ended up switching. I, was that challenging, being very forthright with the missteps along the ways, uh, especially at a Harvard institution? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think that... Um... Our, our lives are full of missteps, you know, in a lot of different different ways. And I think if you don't own them and try to learn from them, then it's an opportunity loss for sure. So, you know, I think for us, um, you know, as with any novel procedure, it really is incumbent on you to make sure that you're not just doing things to a patient, but for them. And, you know, I the the surgical literature, the surgical historical literature is 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 littered with examples of things that seemed like good ideas, right? They were founded in some sort of anatomic or maybe even physiologic principle. And the fact of the matter is it didn't make a darn bit of difference whether you did the surgery or not. It was no better than placebo. And, you know, this, like I, I, uh, I tore my meniscus. I actually had my knee scoped and my meniscus trimmed and I thought I was doing well that same year that that I had that surgery, the randomized controlled trial in the New England Journal came out showing that meniscectomy versus a scope alone were no different. So I, you know, I think that I approach um, this struggle um, to help 
patients that have really bad symptoms, really horrible quality of life. Uh, I approach it with that in mind, that even if you think it should be helping, there are a lot of assumptions that go into that. And without a, you know, randomized placebo-controlled double-blinded trial, which is really difficult to do when the sham is a thoracotomy um, with no operation, um, you have to be very vigilant for convincing yourself that what you're doing is, is working when it's really not. So, for example, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, controversy, you know, with, with folks that take care of patients with TBM on whether to put a stent in. And we have insisted on putting stents in and using the readout from the stent trial of the airway to determine whether we think it's likely that the anatomy is causative. Meaning you can have really bad TBM, but that might not be what is actually causing your shortness of breath. So we keep going with the stent trial and you know, hopefully when our randomized sort of medical treatment versus stent um, trial is, is finished accruing and we publish it, we'll understand whether that made sense or not. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you have to be, you have to be pretty honest. You don't want to be looked back on historically as one of these, one of these ideas that, that at the end of the day was completely debunked and, um, you know, um, you hope that what you're doing is is actually making a substantial difference for patients. Yeah, and, and I think that the, the comment I'd also like to make is for our audience is, especially in this day and age, um, there's a lot of people that don't appreciate the importance of doing good prospective case series and evolving these techniques, right? Everybody gets swayed to, oh, we should do large database research, uh, but they don't understand sometimes that, uh, that the importance of surgeons and surgical practices really detailed collection of their data. Uh, and I love that approach of, um, as you correctly pointed out, is a stent the way to do it or not? I mean, that seems the way that most people are doing it, but you are proving it right now with a randomized control trial. I, I really admire that uh, about what, what you guys are doing. Now, kudos to you uh, for, for doing that brave work. Uh, it's, it's, it's not glamorous to say the least <laughs> at times. Uh, but, uh, you know, what I'd like to do, Sidhu, is in the time that we have left, I really want to uh, transition a little bit. I mean, you know, you've had this tremendously unique background, different cultures growing up. Um, fortunately, you, you're in the good graces of your parents now being part of the Harvard faculty. But then recently you were named as um, chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee um, in the Department of Surgeon, uh, Surgery at Beth Israel. Can you describe to us uh, how you embarked on that? It was just merely because they realized that you have this unique background and, or was there something else in terms of getting this particular leadership position? The committee had been formed uh, prior to my becoming the chair. This committee didn't arise with you know, the significant inciting events of this year, George Floyd's murder and, and, and many other events, but. That, that served, I think, as, as catalysts for what you're seeing across the country at many different levels. So within industry, within academia, you're seeing uh, a push to establish um, committees, workforces, et cetera, 
that will address deficiencies in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, in our department, we had a pre-existing uh, committee um, and, and actually I had been part of that. Now, why I was named to that, I'm not sure. I, I like to think of myself as, as a young and innovative voice, but actually when I think about it, I'm kind of like one of the older people now in our department and I think they wanted some gravitas. And if I had hair, you know, I guess they would want that gray haired voice um, as part of this. So, so I was named to that committee. And then this year with everything that was going on, um, we really wanted to, to not be a committee that just thought about things, but actually was, was making substantial difference. And, and to be perfectly frank, one of the catalysts uh, for my wanting to be in the leadership role and applying to be the, the chair of the committee was we had had um, a resident um, who was a, a black woman who um, ultimately left the residency. And I think now she is out of surgery completely. And um, I was not aware of the degree of exclusion that she felt within our department, which has a very good culture otherwise. I would say that, you know, one of the things that draws me to the BI and the Department of Surgery in particular at the BI is this culture of what I perceived as inclusivity. You know, it's, uh, it's a place where I think we're approaching within the faculty nearly 50% non-white. We, you know, have in our residency over 50% women in the general surgery program. I think, it, you know, it's, it's coming from a background of inclusivity, yet this woman's experience was horribly uh, the opposite. And, and it made me examine what we're doing and what we're taking for granted. And the more I looked at it on a personal level, reading Dr. Kendi and other um, uh, really thought leaders in this area, it made me realize that that some of the issues that I uh, considered uh, having a handle on as somebody who grew up as you know a minoritized individual really really needed to be explored. And then also, I needed to understand that my experience was not the experience of somebody who was black or somebody who was a uh, you know, a queer woman or any one of a number of other groups who have been marginalized um, in our society. And, and I thought that because it's sort of my ideas about this were, were growing, I thought I could be in a good position to give some of this back to the department. And, and ultimately the, uh, you know, the chair sort of signed me up to, to be in this position. We've cobbled together an amazing group within this committee which comprises both faculty and, and trainees. Um, and we're trying to actually do stuff. I mean, we try to do a lot of thinking and talking because I think that's important to really get on the same page, but we're trying to put in some policies that, that hopefully will make a difference um, with regard to representation, um, with regard to fairness, and with regard to uh, creating support networks um, within our department and the hospital at large that will promote success and not define success as a very antiquated uh, term 
that you and I both grew up with. And I think we know what it is, even though it may not have a perfect definition. No, I, I, and it's interesting. I, um, you you cited Dr. Ibrahim Kendi, who's uh, written some amazing books. Um, you know, stamped from the beginning, how to be an anti-racist, and of course, just recently was appointed as a center director right there in your backyard at Boston University. Um, but I, I I'm amazed by you know what he meant in his second book that how to be an anti-racist, um, and I loved what he stated that it's not enough to be not racist. You have to be anti-racist, meaning that you have to go beyond just recognizing racism exists and you have to actually do deliberate actions to counteract that. And it sounds like that's what your committee is really committed towards, active interventions, not just this passive, okay, we'll just do implicit bias training from everybody. Okay, we're done with uh, you know, discrimination. I mean, you're, you're trying to go beyond that. Is that a, a, a fair way of summing that up? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I'll give you an example just within our group, within our cardiothoracic residency. So in the last 10 years, um, we're in the last 10 trainees. So we have a traditional residency that after you finish general surgery, you, you know, you, you start for two years. And <clears throat> our last trainees, uh, 10 trainees, you know, four of them were women and six of them were men. I think four or four of the 10 are non-white. I think it's a fairly you know, diverse group. If you ask me, how did we get that? It was purely by accident. Like, and so some people might look at that and say, well, that's great. You know, you have a colorblind, genderblind um, sort of strategy for picking quote unquote, the best trainee. And I think that what you realize is that we're not in a place where you can afford to be colorblind, genderblind, right? The, these are things where there needs to be active energy spent towards thinking about how to, to create equity uh, and to create an even playing field because we're not at an even playing field right now. So when people say um, I'm not racist, that's, if, if racist things don't happen around them, it's purely by accident. So I think, um, you know, making it an active process clearly is, is a component of what we're trying to accomplish um, in, our, uh, in our committee for our department. And then, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, it shouldn't be said that we're the only people working on this here. And, and it's far from my, um, you know, my, my baby. There, there are some pretty amazing people that have done far more work, have done far more research in the uh, disparity space than, than I have that are, are pushing things along um, at the hospital level and also our system level. So, you know, I, I am really um, lucky to be working alongside of them um, and, and learning from a lot of these uh, folks that are pushing the envelope and, and making things change because it, it's all about, um, you know, making it better for the future and, and not having that happen by accident just because of population demographics changing or something like that. That's incredible. Are there any questions that you wish we had asked you today? I guess, you know, why, why surgery at all? Right. Yeah. You know, this is a question I, I, I'm sort of thinking about this because, because we just are starting our interviews and, you know, that's kind of a typical question that you get. And, and it's interesting to hear how people, people address it. 
everybody comes to that from a little different place, but uh, I think I can trace for myself, you know, the, the lineage goes back to working in a gas station. I worked in a gas station, you know, for five years. I, I worked my way up to be the manager, but I started off, uh, you know, just pumping gas in New Jersey. You have to, you actually have to pump the gas for people. And back in the day, it was a service station. So we checked the oil and washed the windshields and stuff like that. But um, I had a boss who was, uh, you know, this German American guy who grew up in, in Belleville and he was a pretty rough and tumble guy, but had a really specific way how he wanted stuff done. If you were cleaning the front door glass, it had to be just so. You had to fold the paper towel just so. And I could have gone one of two directions, I think, as a result of that experience. I could have hated doing that kind of stuff. Or I could have said, you know, there's something to this. There's something to the fact that it is so important to him to have it done a certain way. And I ended up going in that direction. And I think that's really what surgery is all about, right? If you have very strong feelings about everything you do physically, um, every solution to a physical problem, then surgery is going to be a great option for you. And then if you want to take it and blend in all of the other stuff about the human condition and dealing with problems that are really difficult, then thoracic surgery and cardiac surgery are great options for you. So that's kind of how I ended up where I am. That, those are poignant words. Well, um, Sadhu, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you today, just to pick your brains. Um, obviously, it, it's it's tough during this pandemic. We're doing all this by Zoom and everything. <laughs> We'd love to be hanging out with you in person. Yeah. But uh, no, on behalf of uh, our audience, uh, thank you for joining us on today's episode of Same Surgeon, Different Life. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been great to be here. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.